So a couple, a couple times a year, the leadership of the church, uh, we go away for like a strategy meeting. We go away for like two or three days to just dream about and talk about the church and, and where we think God's leading us. And, and, and we usually, uh, some nice uh, person at our church usually offers uh, their condo at New Smyrna for this. And so we normally get to go and stay close to the beach. And, and it's, a, it's a fun uh, two days. And, and so we were, we were on one of these little two-day kind of strategy meetings, um, and after a long day of meetings, uh, a few of us decided we were going to go fishing on John, our lead pastor's boat that he made with his own two hands, and uh, and so uh, so I, I went, and I'm not much of a fisherman. My dad loves to fish. My boys love to fish. I, I, I could take it or leave it, but you know, I'll go along for the ride, so so we're, we're going to go fishing this evening, and, uh, and so before we go fishing, we've got to go by the bait shop. And if you're not a fisher person and, uh, and you, uh, you've never been to a bait shop before and you have no idea kind of what that experience is like, um, I would describe it as a, as a mini depressing sea world. Okay, so if you go into a bait shop, you got all these little aquarium tanks and you got, you know, your fish and your shrimp and your, and your crabs, but you also know like their end is near, right? So it's like a kind of a depressing place. And, and so I'm, you know, I'm, this is why I'm not a good fisherman, but I'm walking around and, you know, I'm looking looking at all the, the fish and the shrimp and the crabs and while John's like figuring out what we need to get. And as I'm walking by the, the, t- the tank full of these little crabs, I notice that there's one on the ground and he's escaped. And I'm so excited for him. I'm like, look at you. You are so close to freedom. You got out. You are going to, you, I, I can't wait to see the Pixar film about you. Like, I am so excited for this little crab. And, and Gary Abbott is, is with me. And I'm telling Gary, like, look, this guy's going to make it to freedom. And so we, you know, we keep walking around, keep checking out the stuff. And then on the way back, as I'm walking, I hear a crunch. And, uh, and I'm, I'm mortified that I have just tragically ended this Pixar movie that's playing in my head. And I look down and I, ha- I had stepped on, on the crab. And, um, and I'm sad about it. I'm sad that he was so close to freedom. And then it ended. And, uh, and I'm expressing my sadness to Gary when a, a young woman who works at the bait shop, and um, the best way I can describe her is that she was a bait shop woman. Um, and so she comes over and, uh, and she, goes, she goes, are you sad about that? And she picks up the crab and throws it back into the tank with the other crabs. And she looks at me and she goes, are you sad about that? And I said, well, yeah, I was a little sad because he had gotten out and I was thinking about the fact that he was going to be free. And, and, and then she looked at me with what I will describe as wonder. And she said, I have never seen such softness in a man. I'd like to think that was just her seeing Jesus in me. Uh, I, I, I would also like to think that my interaction with her led her to expecting more from a man than what she had expected before. But in all seriousness, there was a softness about Jesus, but not in the way that's often depicted. We have a lot of depictions of Jesus, especially in art and in movies. Um, and and you, would, you would see these depictions and you would say, yeah, that's characterized by softness. But they aren't really accurate pictures of Jesus. 
you know, these pictures of Jesus with this long flowing hair, you know, walking down the, the beach with the, with the purple beauty pageant sash on and, and, you know, declaring to everyone, I am Jesus. Like that, that isn't Jesus. That's not an accurate picture of Jesus from the Gospels. Because in the Gospels, as you look at his softness, that, isn't, that doesn't diminish his strength. In fact, it's Jesus's softness is what is, that's the thing that leads him to tremendous bravery. And that's what I think we'll see specifically as we look at what we're, what we're studying today. Now in this series, the day that death lost its sting, we're looking at the day that Jesus died so that we can better see him, so that we can better know him. Because it's oftentimes in the midst of suffering that a person's true character can clearly be seen. And when I see Jesus on this last day, what I see is a softness that leads to tremendous bravery. Now, it's interesting that in all four Gospels, the writers choose to slow down a whole lot during the last week of Jesus's life. You know, they take a lot more time to tell us about these last few moments. One commentator said, the amount of space in the Gospels devoted to Christ's sufferings and death is so disproportionate as to underscore the paramount value of that period in his life and ministry. See, Jesus' last day is crucial to us knowing him. And in John's gospel, the gospel that we've been looking at together as a church for the past month or so, John spends almost half the gospel with Jesus' last day. In chapter 13, when he's washing the disciples' feet, that's about, I mean, that's maybe, maybe 18 hours before Jesus' crucifixion. So starting in chapter 13, John ends up spending the next five chapters telling us about Jesus's last day, because Jesus's last day is crucial to us knowing him. And like we said last week, this series isn't about next steps, so you don't need to worry about taking notes. Uh, It's really about slowing down and just seeing Jesus, because by doing so, we will see a God who is not immune to the pain and suffering of this broken and messed up world, but a God who bravely entered into it. Last week, we saw when faced with his final hours, what Jesus longed for by looking at what he prayed for. He prayed for us. Today, we will see what propelled him to move toward his final hours with tremendous resolve and bravery. So we're in John, and we're in John chapter 18. I'm going to start reading in the first verse. Uh, It's printed in your bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, or or you can look it up on your phone, Uh, but, but hear these words. John chapter 18, verse 1. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priest and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. 
This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? This is God's word. So let's take a minute to just imagine the scene. Now, most commentators believe that Jesus was arrested sometime after midnight and at least a few hours before dawn. So maybe around 3 a.m. in the morning. Now, Passover corresponds with the full moon. So even though this all took place in the dark of night, there was still quite a bit of light. Now, the Mount of Olives, where this all went down, was located outside of the city of Jerusalem. And many wealthy people had private gardens on the Mount of Olives. See, in the city of Jerusalem, there wasn't space for people to have their own private garden. The city was too uh, congested. It was too populated. And in fact, they also had some ceremonial prohibitions, which made it forbidden to use manure inside the sacred city. And so if you were wealthy and you wanted a garden, you would go outside the city and you would get some little plot of land on the Mount of Olives and you would set up a garden. And, And out of all these gardens, there was one garden in particular that Jesus and his disciples would often go to when they just needed to get away, when they just needed to rest and relax. And it was the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, Gethsemane means oil press. So this particular garden was the place where all the oil was extracted from the olives that were grown on the hill. So this one particular little garden that Jesus often went to was owned by someone. We have no idea who it was owned by. But we know he or she uh, were told in in the Gospel of Luke that it was mostly women who supported Jesus' ministry, who funded it. Uh, Whoever owned it was obviously a friend of Jesus, and this was a safe place for him and his disciples. Now, it's important to point this out because it's important to note that Judas knew this garden well. It says that in verse 2. John makes it very clear. This might seem like an insignificant detail, but it's not. It's in fact an important detail to seeing just how brave Jesus was. Because hours earlier, while celebrating the Passover with his disciples, Jesus said this. Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to Jesus. Simon Peter motioned to the disciple and said, ask him which one he means. I love that. I love that Simon Peter's like, hey, you ask him. Um, But leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. See, Jesus knew exactly where Judas was headed. He knew the act of betrayal that was just hours away. Now, if I were Jesus, I'd be devising a plan on how I could escape this. I would see what lies ahead of me, and I would turn and run the other way. The last place I would go would be the place that I usually would hang with my boys, right? I would not go to the the hangout spot. But Jesus deliberately goes to the place that Judas knew, the place that Judas would assume he'd be, the place where Judas would most certainly bring those who wanted to arrest him. John says in verse 18, or in chapter 18, verse 2, now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. And Judas didn't just arrive with a few soldiers. 
In verse 3, we're told that he brings a detachment of soldiers. Now, the word for detachment uh, was a word that usually described 600 men. 600 Roman soldiers. These were scary dudes. These were not like, they were not soft. They were very scary dudes. And now we don't know if all 600, if, if that actually means that 600 soldiers came to arrest Jesus, but we know that it was more than a few. So all of this to arrest a poor carpenter from a podunk town called Nazareth. So you have the picture, moonlight, sloped gardens, hundreds of scary soldiers with with lanterns and torches and swords, three o'clock in the morning. And then what happens next astonishes me. In fact, it's something that has astonished me for a long time. Jesus knowing all that was going to happen to him. And John makes that clear too. Look again at verse four. Jesus knowing all knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? It's so like Jesus to ask a question because from the very beginning, God has sought sinful people with questions. Adam, Eve, where are you? From the very beginning, from the very first time you and I turned against God, God, knowing the answer, still sought us with questions because questions invite relationship. A question says, I'm open to reestablishing connection with you. So asking a question is the most godlike thing Jesus could do. And as I was sitting in this story and as I was imagining the scene and this interaction between Jesus and these scary Roman soldiers, I couldn't help but think that Jesus even knowing all that was going to happen to him, looked at these men and wanted nothing more than to invite them into relationship with himself. Because that's why he came, for them to be in relationship with them. In fact, John tells us that in the very beginning of his gospel. In, in John 1, 11 and 12, it says, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. So Jesus, on the day of his death, sought relationship with those who would kill him. Who is it you want? They replied, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. Do you see it? Jesus is saying, I'm him. I'm who you're looking for. I know you're looking for me to kill me, but in finding me, you have found what you have been looking for your whole life. Your whole life, you've been running from me. You've been trying to find your worth and your significance apart from me. But here I am. I'm right here. I'm right in front of you. They were seeking him to kill him, but he was seeking them to save them, to invite them to see him. You can't help but see the softness in Jesus as he asks this question, who is it you want? Who is it you're seeking? See, despite their evil intentions, Jesus knew their heart. He knew their entire story. He knew the ways that sin and selfishness had ravaged who they had become. He knew all of that. But he also knew why he was there, that that's why he came, to save them from their sins. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out to them and says, who is it you want? And their response to Jesus was this. John says that they they drew back and then they fell to the ground. These battle-hardened, tough, Dothraki-like Roman soldiers 
were scared to death. And I've been trying to make sense of that all week because that doesn't make sense to me. But then I realize how often I am scared of Jesus. Just like Adam and Eve were scared of God and, and, and Adam's response to God's question, where are you, was, well, I, I, I heard you in the garden. I, I heard the sound of your voice and I, and I hid because I was naked. I was afraid. See, the voice of God scares us because it exposes us. Jesus scares us because he exposes us. We can no longer hide behind our armor or our strength or our achievements or our success because we're completely known by him. In fact, John tells us in John 2.25, Jesus did not need any testimony about mankind for he knew what was in each person. Jesus knows you. He knows what's in you. He knows what you are capable of. He knows all. And he still invites you into relationship with him. He still continues to ask, who is it you want? Jesus knew they wanted to kill him, but he wanted them. Do you see that there's this softness about Jesus, this softness towards mankind the softness towards sinful men that would ultimately lead to him having tremendous bravery. Again, Jesus is being so godlike. This year we started by looking at the I am statements of Jesus. I am the, the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. And in all these statements, whenever he says I am, he uses, he uses a unique phrase in the Greek, ego ami. And both these words mean I am. So if you were to translate it literally, it would be saying, I am, I am. And in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, Moses asked God, what is your name? And God essentially says, I am, I am. So whenever Jesus makes these I am statements throughout the book of John, he's saying, I'm God. I am, I am. And that's the same unique phrase he says when he's standing before these Roman soldiers. Jesus says, I am, I am. He isn't just being God-like, he is God. And as God, he's about to be marched to his death by men who were terrified of him. Who when he said, I am he, they fell back in fear. Now imagine if these soldiers could see what Jesus saw. As a kid, I always loved the story of Elisha in 2 Kings 6. And this is the story where, where God, Elisha and God's people are, are surrounded by the enemy. And it just it's completely hopeless. It looks like there's absolutely no way out. They're in a situation that they cannot win. They are surrounded on all sides. And one of Elisha's servants comes up to him and he says, Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? He thinks this is it. And Elisha replies to him, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prays, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. And then we're told when, when God opens the servant's eyes, all he sees is just chariots of fire surrounding Elisha and God's people protecting them. Now, like Elisha, Jesus knew that in this very moment, he was surrounded by a host of angels an army of heavenly beings much greater than a detachment of Roman soldiers filled that garden. And he knew that if he asked, a legion of angels would come to his aid. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, he, Matthew tells us that's exactly what Jesus says as they're arresting him. 
He says, do you not think that I could call my father and at once he would send 12 legions of angels to my rescue? But see, this was also one of the temptations of Jesus. When Jesus started his ministry, right after his baptism and he began his public ministry, we're told he went into the wilderness and was tempted by Satan for 40 days. And one of the temptations was that Jesus would call on the angels to rescue him. In fact, Satan quotes Psalm 91:11, which says, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. But here on Jesus' last day, we see Jesus resist the ultimate temptation. And instead of calling for his rescue, he's determined for our rescue. Jesus says again, who is it you want? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I already told you, I'm he. If it's me you're looking for, let them go. Those on death row are often asked if they have a, a last wish or a last meal that they want or, or do they have any final words they want to, to proclaim before they're, before they're executed. What does Jesus ask for? For us to be set free. Let them go. Jesus wants you free. Now, I know some of you don't feel like you will ever get free from, from whatever, some of you feel like you, will, you, you don't even deserve to be free. But when you read this story, you cannot hear this story and think, Jesus got up and faced these scary Roman soldiers so that you would remain trapped. Jesus' final plea, the final thing that he wanted when he could have asked for anything was let these people go. Was your and my freedom. What propelled Jesus to move toward his final hours with tremendous bravery was your and my freedom. Do you believe that you can be free from that thing? Do you believe that there is actual freedom, that God wants you free and alive? As Jesus was being arrested, we're told Peter drew a sword, which was probably more like a dagger, and he cut off the right ear of one of these soldiers. And Jesus says to him, put away your sword. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? It's a weird thing to say. Jesus sometimes said weird things. So what, what, what does he mean by, by talking about this cup? Should I, should I drink this cup? What doesn't really make sense. But John doesn't actually tell us about Jesus' agony in the garden right before his arrest. He doesn't tell us about Jesus praying with his Father and pleading for God to take the cup away from him. Jesus says, like, if there's any way that this cup can pass from me, take it away. But not my will, but your will be done. John doesn't tell us that scene, but it's in the other three Gospels. And in fact, in Luke's Gospel, we're told that Jesus is in such agony about what lies ahead of him that in fact his sweat turns to blood. So this cup means something. It's a powerful imagery. It has powerful imagery. In fact, you see the imagery of the cup throughout the Old Testament scriptures. Throughout the Old Testament, we read of the cup of divine blessing. Psalm 16, 5, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. Psalm 23, 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. But we also read of the cup of divine wrath and judgment. Psalm 55, uh, 75, 8. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. 
He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. Isaiah 51, 17, rise up, Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drained it to the dregs, the goblet that makes people stagger. Jesus' perfect life meant that he could drink from the cup of God's divine blessing. We, who because of our sin deserve judgment and death, can only drink from the cup of God's divine wrath. But in Gethsemane, Jesus Christ decides to switch cups with us. That's what he's agonizing over. He's agonizing over whether or not he will take our cup. So when Jesus tells Peter to put down the sword, he is resolving to drink the cup of wrath and judgment that we deserve, which means that you and I get to drink the cup of blessing even though we didn't earn it. That's the gospel, that Jesus switched cups with us. And if Jesus had just appeared out of thin air and was crucified on the cross, that wouldn't have saved us. A holy God doesn't just require payment for sin, but he also requires perfect obedience. Therefore, Jesus was born and he lived 30-something years under God's law perfectly. He did everything right. He earned the righteousness that you and I need, but that we are incapable of. He lived the way that God designed us to live without fault or mistake or sin so that he could at the end of his life switch cups with us. Charles Spurgeon says, in Christ, the believer is as just in the sight of God as if he had never sinned. That means we get to drink the cup of the blessing of God because in God's eyes, you and I are without sin. We are holy and blameless, but it's only because in the garden, Jesus decided to switch cups with us. Why did he do this? Well, it was Jesus's softness towards us that came because of him knowing our hopelessness. He knew we couldn't do it on our own. Jesus's softness towards us led him to bravely facing death in our place. Jesus Christ lived the life that you and I were designed to live so that he could die the death that we deserve so that he could switch cups with us. I told you this story um, always astonished me um, and it's because of a very personal connection uh, to this story. When I was a youth pastor, um, I, and I was, I was relatively new at it and, and definitely felt like I didn't know what I was doing, um, there was a family in my church who had five kids, four of whom were in my ministry at the time. And around Easter, um, their dad took his life uh, in, in a wooded area in their neighborhood. And, um, and I know suicide has touched many lives in here, and in fact, it has touched our church on, on, on a few times, and it's always devastating. So even as I talk about this, I want you to know if that's you, if you are struggling, if you have thoughts, if, if, if you are in a dark place, please tell someone. Tell me, tell someone. Because suicide is never the only option, and it's never the right option. I have never witnessed a more profound grief than that expressed by those who suicide leaves behind. So I, I remember, uh, you know, this, this, I remember I, I, was, I, was at, I was at the house when they, when they found him. And, and I just remember wrapping my arms around these kids and thinking, I have, no, I, have no, I have no idea what to say to them. No idea. 
I was a complete wreck about it. I loved their dad. Their dad was a man who loved Jesus. We had had many conversations about Jesus. We had many conversations about what it means to be a parent of teenagers. Like, it did not make any sense to me. And a few days after, after that horrific day, I was in my car and I could not shake images of, 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 of Ray, who was their dad, in the woods agonizing over what it would mean to continue living in a broken world. I couldn't shake images of him looking at the mess that he had created and just deciding to give up. And it was very disturbing, and, and I, didn't, I, could not, I could not get it out of my mind. And so I, I was sitting in my car, and again, this was around Easter, and, uh, and I had just read this passage. I had just read John 18, and I'm sitting at a stoplight on 1792, and I got the clearest picture of Jesus that I've ever experienced. And it was an image of Jesus in the woods, and he was doing the exact same thing as Ray. He was crying and he was sweating, and he was shaking, and he was agonizing over the brokenness of this world. And it hit me. Jesus knew how Ray felt. He knew what it was to agonize over the mess in this world and the bravery it would take to move into the suffering that it brings. Jesus knew how he felt. If you are struggling with any type of hopelessness, I think this is a great comfort. If you are agonizing over a messy marriage or over messy circumstances or, or messy relationships with a parent or a child or a coworker or a dear friend, even if it's a mess that you t- totally brought on, if you are agonizing over how to take your next steps in this messed up broken world, Jesus knows how you feel. Ray wasn't alone in those woods. And when I realized that, all of a sudden something lifted. And before the light turned green, I saw Jesus as clear as I've ever seen him, overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, getting up. Jesus looked at the mess that we've created and he knew the bravery it would take to move into the suffering of our mess And he got up. Sometimes you and I look at the mess and we say, I I can't, I'm out. I can't do it. We lose hope that it will ever get better. We don't see a way out. But listen, you and I, we don't have to see the way out. We don't have to figure the way out. The way, Jesus said, I am the way. We don't have to find a way out. We just have to see the way. We just have to see Jesus. There is no mess greater than the Son of God. Our hope is not in our ability to fix messes, but in Him. Jesus was was so brave. And if that's the case, if Jesus is brave, that means that even when we aren't, we're okay. He was brave for us. That means no matter how bad it gets, no matter how much we've messed it up, no matter how dark it gets, you aren't alone and you have a Savior who knows how you feel, but in your hopelessness, He is hope. Jesus in this story looks at the mess, not that He created, but that we created, and Jesus gets 
Jesus walks bravely into every mess and says, take me. Let them go. As we look at Jesus' last day, we see a softness that leads to a tremendous bravery. A bravery that says no matter how messy, no matter how much pain, no matter what it's going to feel like to go through this, take me. Let them be free. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that in Jesus we see a bravery that we can put our faith and our trust and our hope in. Father, I thank you that in Jesus we can, we can see that you know what it's like to feel agony, to, to, to suffer and feel the weight of, of messed up and broken circumstances. That in Jesus, we see one who can sympathize with every single one of our weaknesses, yet he was without sin. And so ultimately, we can rest knowing that no matter what, he has already switched cups with us. That when we stand before you, there is not a bit of wrath left for us and our mistakes and the ways in which we've done it wrong. But we could only drink from the cup of blessing. May we see that beauty of Jesus, that bravery of Jesus so clearly that no matter what we are going through, we can find hope. Hope that it will not always be like this. Hope that because Jesus got up, we can get up too. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.